Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the managing director of B Squared and the host of the Sendcast. We started this podcast a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. There is lots of stuff you can go and read, but we're all very, very busy. Everyone working in schools needs training and support around SEND, but the funding isn't there to achieve this. And the Sendcast is a great way to solve that problem. It's also a great way to get the same information to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, I have a different guest that has come along to talk about an area they are passionate about. And this week, I'm discussing high quality teaching for SEND with my guest, Gary Orbin. Gary is the Lone Senko. He is also the SEND content specialist for the Education Endowment Foundation. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. And over the last 25 years, we have supported schools to support students with SEND. Our main focus is assessment and showing small steps of progress. But we've also developed an online CPD platform, Training for Education. It started a couple of years ago with the virtual Send conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, www.trainingforeducation.com. At the end of the episode, I'll be sharing an exclusive Sendcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing high-quality teaching for SEND. My guest this week is Gary Orbin. Gary is the SEND Content Specialist for the Education Endowment Foundation and Director of SEND for a Multi-Academy Trust. You may also know Gary from his book, The Lone Senko, Question and Answers, The Busy Senko, or his blog, sendmatters.co.uk. I really don't know where he finds the time. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thanks ever so much. Lovely to be here, Dale. Thank you. Okay, right. So I'm going to start with a question I keep saying on social media. Uh oh. Is it high quality teaching or is it quality first teaching? <laughs> is there right. a difference? Are they the same? Is one more fashionable? Ah, right. Well, I'm not one often to talk on fashion with any authority, but the Send Code of Practice uses high quality teaching. So if we're looking to align what we're saying broadly with, you know, the terms that are being used in legislation, then then we should be using high quality teaching. I don't actually know where quality first teaching originates. It's in the Rose Review, which looked at the teaching of reading, but I can't speak with enough authority about whether it originated from there or has been used as a term for decades, I'm afraid. But high quality teaching is in the code of practice, so let's use that. I think it's a slight, you know, how important is that question, I wonder. I think the two things for me mean exactly the same thing, though I use high quality teaching. There are other more important distinctions, I think, around do we use differentiation or do we talk about inclusive teaching, adaptive teaching? I think there is a difference between those. So they actually, there's a reason to use one, not the other, as far as I'm concerned. And we can talk about that if that's, if that's helpful. I think when two terms mean exactly the same thing, we shouldn't split heads too much about which one we use. But we should think, actually, what does that mean? And I wonder, us, and I, and I say this, having been a Senko who couldn't do it myself, as a Senko, can you articulate really clearly what that means? Because I know certainly when I've been snowed under and doing deeply technical things around SEND, I've gone to teachers, it's high quality teaching. And they're no further ahead once I tell them that than they were before I had that conversation with them because I haven't helped them to see what it is. And I think some Senkos see their role as separate to driving teaching and learning. And that's fine because there's so much to do in the role without touching 
the improvements of teaching in colleagues. So it's a really tough role. And if you don't get to that bit, that's for a very good reason, because you're working incredibly hard. But, you know, I do believe that that's the greatest thing you can do is, is, is change what teachers are doing in classrooms. And someone might make great progress in your intervention for 20 minutes twice a week. But actually, if they're in a classroom, if they're in a classroom for five, six hours a day, actually, that's where the magic's going to happen, isn't it? That's the one we want to get right in particular. So for me, high quality teaching makes more sense too. Quality first, what I get from that is the first thing you do, almost like before you even do interventions or anything, the first thing you do is quality teaching. He's kind of saying it, that's the first thing you work on. Go for the quality first. Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely. Yeah, that it, it's the quality first. Perhaps you're absolutely right there, Dale. You've taught me something today. But I think that's where it's come from. But the phrase on its own, out of that context, is a bit odd. Quality first, teaching. Yeah, as opposed to what? Quality second or, or quantity first? Or, you know, I'm not sure what it's, what it's instead of. But I think obviously clearly there's a fascinating question about actually what that means. And some of the work that the Education Endowment Foundation have done and have talked about in its SCN in Mainstream Guidance Report, which one I will talk a bit about this today, um, you know, that, that's, that's the really interesting conversation as well for me, is actually what does that mean in terms of SEND? Um, and, and what are those approaches that have an evidence base to say, this is a good thing to be doing for all students, including those who send. Because that's that's when the really good stuff happens, isn't it? Is when you're, you, you're as a teacher, you're doing things that are broadly helpful to everyone. Some lean on that bit of support a bit more than others, but they're not unhelpful for everyone, for anyone. And someone within send talked to me about the um, the automatic doors um, sort of approach, how doors opening automatically when you go to walk in a building isn't unhelpful for anyone and it's particularly helpful for people who have um, physical disabilities potentially so you know that that's a, it's a it's a really good metaphor i think for this approach of putting in bits of scaffolding or or just approaches in how you deliver your lesson to a class and work with your class in a way that isn't unhelpful for everyone and will be particularly helpful for some i think one of the things with high quality teaching is and I've seen some comments on the Senko groups I found really odd. And somebody went on a thing and it was someone discussed what high quality teaching looked like. And this person went, but that's my job as a Senko. I do those things. So they shouldn't be doing it. And I was like, that is the most weirdest thing I've ever read. What the hell? They're helping the child. And then I got to the next section and I went, ah. and it was, They've already got enough on their plate with everything else they're doing. And I was like, so it's too much for them to do this. So, but it's like, okay, so it's too much work to support every child. That sounds wrong. But then there is a question of is, again, what is it they're spending their time doing? Yeah, the high quality teaching in the classroom is probably the teacher's biggest responsibility. In the moment, in the classroom, that's where you are really focusing, leading on subjects and doing stuff after that, or doing some paperwork because somebody's asked you to do it because it's currently fashionable, or that style of marking, or two stars and a wish, whatever the current trend is, that's a secondary thing to me. The actual being in the classroom, that's the bit that matters. Yeah, um, and... We know that that's that's what makes the biggest difference as well is, you know, lots of things tinker around the edge and lots of things are really essential tinkering for the successful running of a school. And if what you're trying to do is send a quick email to a parent because their child was in tears as they came in this morning, you know, that 
we can, I don't mean to be flippant about any of these things that teachers may be doing when they, for a, for a moment, take their eye off that really good teaching in front of the children who are in front of them. Sometimes there's an inevitability or, or a need about some of that. But actually, of course, we know that the thing that makes the biggest difference to children is the what that teacher does in front of them. Um, and part of that, of course, is how that teacher has been developed and supported in their school. But but that's the thing, isn't it? And um, someone was telling me, who was it recently? They had a nice phrase, which was make the thing the thing. I forget. What, oh, in fact, yes, it was a colleague who was delivering a seminar with. Make the thing the thing. If the thing is great teaching, make that the thing. Make that what you focus on the most. And um, I can see why, um, again, Senko's struggle to get to supporting teaching because this, I think sometimes the Senko role feels like it's set up to put you behind a, behind a laptop. And so it's, it's creating lengthy IEPs because Ofsted might want to look at them. And, and, they, they, and my experience is they don't particularly. But, but, you know, the longer the IEP, the better. Or the better my annual review paperwork, the better or the more comprehensive my exam access arrangements processes are, the better. And actually all those things are, you need to do those things. Um, but with the Senkos that I work with in my MAT role, I will not judge any of them particularly on the um, gold standard annual review forms that go to the local authority or um, exam access arrangements paperwork that gets sent off to JCQ or, or gets looked at when JCQ come. You know, those things, are, are, are you need to do them. You can't get around them. But actually, those things cannot stop you from being in and around classrooms and corridors, providing training. And I mean that with a small T training, really. Sometimes it's about standing in front of the whole school with an hour saying this. But it shouldn't typically be that. It should typically be that you are there as a support and a bit of a challenge to colleagues all across the school because you are, you know the students well, you know colleagues well, and you're in and around classrooms and corridors, so you know the reality of what's going on well. And 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 apart from the time thing, actually, is if you're in New Senko, and you know, when I was, it's really hard to control other things. I remember there's an assistant head teacher, who's a really great English teacher, and he had a class with a lot of students who have EHCPs in, I think it was year eight. And I was going around and seeing what was going on in his classroom. I forget the sort of catalyst for going in there, but there was a reason. Perhaps it was to just to, to see the progress of these students. And I really worried because I sat there in his lesson thinking, this is brilliant. What am I? I'm supposed to be the send expert in the school. And I can't pick out anything that I want to advise him to go and do better. And he's a really experienced colleague, a great teacher, a senior teacher in this school. And I'm, but I'm supposed to be the one with the, the magic answers here. And I didn't have any. Um, and now, in hindsight, what I should have done is just said, no, that's fantastic, thank you. And can you please talk about it at the next English department meeting? Or can you please have this trainee teacher come and have a look at what you're doing? Because it's great. But I felt the need to be holding on to that I am the expert sort of title. Um, so actually, what Senkos often do instead, I think, um, in my experience, is they do the, they control the controllables a bit. And the controllables are probably going to be, where are my teaching assistants? My teaching assistants, I don't mean that. But, you know, wh where are the teaching assistants whom I manage? And am I deploying them correctly? Um, what interventions am I leading on? Not, not, might not be delivering all of them, but I'm coordinating all of them. So, so that I can control. And then certain things around working with parents, working with the local authority that, that may take up a lot of time and, and create um, a great pressure. But actually, they're things that, Sometimes I sort of feel like within my remit to organise or control. That's not strictly true, I know, but they can do. Whereas um, working with teachers across the school and trying to change their practice when, <clears throat> excuse me, my capacity means I can only see it for 10 minutes a week with a particular teacher, means it's much harder for me to control. It's ultimately what, what they do in their teaching every day. It's harder to control. It's harder to, to hold on to that. I am the expert. And so, so what I think Senko's 
often don't do is go and make go and do their work in a way that makes real changes for what teachers do in classrooms. And that that for me is the absolute golden thread of what Asenko should be trying to do in, in schools. Um, and what the EEF research says in this SDN in Mainstream Guidance Report is that there are easy, not easy wins underplays. It makes it sound like there's a magic answer and there clearly isn't. But there are a set of strategies where they have a good um, evidence of being effective for students with SEND. So often people make the assumption that, well, when we talk about evidence, we're talking about neurotypical children. It's not relevant to students with SEND. And, and the thing that, that, you know, the EEF did this big evidence review of students with SEND in particular. And then it said, look, these are five teaching approaches, and we'll go through them, I'm sure, five teaching approaches that have a good evidence base. There's not an automatic sort of magic bullet, but, they, but there's good evidence that these are good approaches to be doing for all students, including those with SEND. I suppose one of the things I think about, um, as you said, the SENCOs often... They do the things they can control. They do the things that the, um, you get a, a response. You get, a, I finished this. Yeah. If I do this paperwork, it goes off my inbox, goes into my outbox and I've done. Yeah. I've got fewer Where, unread emails this afternoon than I did this morning. You know, that's, that's a win in some regards. Absolutely. But does yeah. it make that difference? Whereas actually spending however much time over the next six months changing the way that teacher delivers is a lot of work. And even at the end of it, or is there an end? How do you know when it's ended? And that can be quite daunting is diving into something going, I've got to do this, but where do I start? Um, And things like that is a really big, it's a scary thing to do. And I think one of the things I would say is we'll we'll move on to it. I want to hear what these five areas are. I'm really hoping they're not going to be shocking ones that I've never thought of. Otherwise, that's going to be quite disappointing. Um, but one of the things is when you're doing this is I would say as a Senko, you should get these five things and go to the head teacher with them and go to the deputy head teacher and go to the English lead and the maths lead. And if you're in a secondary, every single department and go, we all need to be doing this. The head teacher agrees, the deputy head teacher, this is going to benefit for all children. This isn't an SEN thing. This isn't every single child thing but it also really makes benefit for SEM, but it will make a difference for every child. And we need this for everyone. And these are the reasons. That's how it needs to be delivered. Not the Senko standing up in a staff meeting going, I'd really like you to do these five things for SEN. And everyone going, yeah, league tables. No, we're not doing it. It's got to be a whole school delivered and promoted from the top with big buy-in the subject leads, making sure when they're working out, this is how we're going to improve maths this year. We are making sure these five things are woven in. So when we're doing the maths lead is doing the learning walks, they are looking for those five things as well. Absolutely right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not only, um, and it's not pretending that those five things are delivered in exactly the same way for all students or all phases or all subjects but they are a good set of approaches that have a good evidence base that then it's of course for practitioners, heads of department, heads of phase to go, how do we, how do we filter this a bit for the children in front of us in particular, or the children in front of me in particular, or the children working within our subject in particular, but actually there are a really good set of approaches that we expect colleagues to go, okay, let's, let's look at what this looks like for me in my day-to-day role working with children. And the good thing about these five approaches, Dale, is they don't, 
They're not deeply technical. They don't need you to have postgraduate qualifications in SEN. So there's a real need for SEND to be, um, you know, integral in all bits of, of teacher training, clearly. Um, but actually, if we need people to have a master's in SEND in order to be able to deliver them, then we're in real problems, aren't we? You, you know, it can't be, we're not talking about speech and language therapists in, uh, standing at the front of, of the class delivering this. Um, nor specialist dyslexia teachers. You know, we're talking about people who have multiple classes often, especially in secondary, and have, um, you know, their, their, their drive is to deliver a curriculum in a way that is supportive, engaging, helps students to make progress and to feel safe and secure and happy and that they belong in their, in their classroom, essentially. Um, and, and within that, we think, well, what headspace have they got to think about SEND in particular? And actually, the, the, the answer is probably not very much. So it needs to be something that isn't. And by the way, please find all this time and all this headspace to do these extra things for SEND. It needs to be woven into the professional development of colleagues. And just to highlight one thing that the EEF did towards the back end of last year was it, 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 it had done a process of looking at what effective professional development looks like within education and other settings um, and where a professional development program has actually led to change. Because I think we know that, you know, Senko stands up in September, says a few things, and then it's forgotten about, and they don't have the chance, they don't have that captive audience of all the teachers again until March. And even when they were speaking in September, all the teachers were thinking about their classes coming back tomorrow. You know, effective professional development is not stand up once and hope for the best, clearly. It's not, you know, I worked with Senkos and said, actually, but are your teachers doing this in practice? And the Senkos will say, well, I've, I've emailed them. And, you know, CPD by email is clearly not going to work in and of its own, apart from a very small number of cases. So so there is a there's a guidance report that the EF, so it's not a guidance report, but it's a evidence review, perhaps um, effective professional development. Please, please take a look at it. It's on the EF website and it's brilliant. And it talked without getting too technical. It talks about these mechanisms. So effective professional development will, for example, need to motivate staff. It will also need to build up the knowledge of staff. It will also need to be not a one-off event. And it gives you ideas for, for what that mechanism, so what that thing might be, for example, that motivates staff. So that's really worth a look, I think, because as Senkos, often you are tasked with making big changes, whole school changes in a school, without sometimes having the support or the um, guidance to actually have to do that in practice and what effective um, professional development can look like. So that's, that's worth a look. Definitely. I'll um, see if I can remember to put a link in the show notes Thanks, for that Taylor. one. So... The five, what are the five things? What are the five um, strategies? Okay, so, so these, um, I'll, I'll read the five first and then give some caveats and then unpick a little, uh, unpick each of them in turn if that's okay. So, so the five, just to sort of list them then, explicit instruction, cognitive and metacognitive strategies, scaffolding, flexible grouping, and using technology. So I'll go through all those in turn, but just to say a couple of things first. Um, uh, firstly, this doesn't pretend that this is the answer to every challenge. There are individual needs that some students will have. So if, if, you're, if your classroom's on the first floor and there's no lift and a child's using a wheelchair, the fact you're using explicit instruction is totally irrelevant. The child can't get into your classroom. But to give a rather extreme example, but, but the, the case in point around this doesn't solve every issue. It doesn't particularly address issues around um, if a child struggles to form secure attachments with adults, for example. So it doesn't address every single um, challenge or question. But what it does do, I think, is give a broad set of approaches 
that is informed by evidence, where the evidence shows that this helps students with SEND to make progress, not only neurotypical students, but in these studies where it's um, looked at what, what does high quality teaching look like, that helps students to make progress when they have a special educational need or disability. And it finds these five things. So, so by doing them consistently, it means that, that teachers don't then have to find um, individual personalized strategies for seven or eight different students in their class who might be all on a send register for different needs and reasons. But actually, it can meet more of those needs at the whole class level through the way they adapt their teaching, adapt their lesson as they go, um, so that they can still have the time to then make those individual adaptations. For example, for the child who might um, benefit from you writing the activities on the board and ticking them off as you go so that students who require that sort of level of um, uh, sort of predictability and routine actually can really benefit because you've had the space to do that because you've got some some um, approaches in your teaching practice that are working for students with SEND um, in almost every case. So it, sh it should free up that teacher to find a bit more time um, to be able to do those those individual make those individual exceptions where they are needed. So, um, sorry, yeah, your, your, your list was I literally going, yeah, 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 yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense. And I think explicit instructions and things, yeah, it, it makes common sense. Um, and it might be, you might be going, I, I do explicit, but take a step back and ask yourself, are you? Yeah, and, and what the what the EF has done this year is to try and really not assume um, expertise in all those things with teachers, because obviously some teachers are brand new to the profession and I've got enough to think about without maybe having a firm idea of what this is. And teachers who trained many years ago would have trained without, you know, without these terms being commonly used. And when I trained, you know, we weren't talking about these things particularly. It was all about learning styles and AFL. So these, it's an acknowledgement that these things change over time, essentially. Um, but there is really good evidence to show that explicit instruction is a really helpful thing. So some, some schools will be familiar with Rosenshine and Rosenshine's principles of instruction. And I think if I just sort of, if we just stop on those for a second, you'll see why they make total sense for SEND. So in this first principle of explicit instruction is a daily review. So lots of schools call this a do now these days, I think. But again, I don't think we talked about terms, didn't we? Maybe it doesn't matter too much what you call it. But you start with a review of previous learning. Well, that makes total sense for students with SEND in my mind, because again, we're not treating students with SEND homogeneously, but many students with SEND will struggle to think about um, previous learning and they'll need a bit of support reactivating some of that learning, getting it from their um, long-term memory a bit more securely into there and also to bring it into their working memory so they can use it for today's lesson. So that doesn't seem like rocket science to me. That's not a deeply technical SEND strategy. It's let's start with helping students to think about what they know already that's going to help them with what they're about to learn. That makes total sense to me. That review thing, you sit there and you have a conversation about a film. Someone goes, oh, have you seen this? And you go, yeah. Uh, my wife looks at me confused. And I look at her and go, yeah, we saw it, yeah? Then I give her a couple of, we, it's yeah, the he one was with in the it, guy this and this and this. Thing, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now she's now on the same page. So she's ready for the next bit of information. It's such an obvious thing. So let's go, let's try and, should we try and extend that analogy of, of talking to your wife about a film perhaps there. We'll see how far we can push it. So the daily review is the first thing. And this next bit of, of again, this is not SEND specific, but the evidence shows that this does work for SEND. Introduce new material in small steps. So you don't then go, well, you, you know, we've told you about what the other film was. Well, let me tell you about this new film that we're going to watch today. And here's 
30 facts about it delivered in four minutes. And it's the equivalent of the teacher standing and delivering um, you know, widely and freely about all their sort of undergraduate knowledge from their teaching from the degree, but actually not thinking that's cognitive overload for a child. I need to introduce these things probably in sort of in a way that is a bit grouped and is now now it's about this thing and then it'll be about that thing. But actually, before we get onto the third thing, we might need to do a bit of an activity to consolidate those first two things. So we'll answer some comprehension questions or we'll have a class discussion about it, for example, before we move on to the third thing, because then you'll have forgotten the first two things because we haven't gone anywhere with it. Yeah. I think if you think about things like that, is my, my daughter's at secondary school, they basically sit there and, and uh, how is school? And they're moaning about a lesson and you hear it and basically you... I think secondary, it's more likely because you have your subject specialists and sometimes you might have someone who's really passionate about their subject and they can talk for five minutes about something within their topic because they're really passionate about it. But it's important to remember you're not sharing your passion. You're, you're using your passion to try and create passion within them. So if you love Marvel films, and I've just talked about this film, and you read off 30 facts about Marvels. And I was like, well, I've watched it, but God, if it's just like about facts about Marvel and I've got to take notes, I'm not going to watch it. So you've got to sit there and go, okay, so I love these 30 things, which are really cool, but actually there's a really cool thing happening because this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And you might only give two or three bits. You might just give a few key bits, which you think be really cool for that person. But you introduce them in small, if you want students to actually retain those 30 things, if that's important for this curriculum they're learning, actually, um, which is in some sort of other universe school, um, actually, you need to introduce it in small steps. You need to not be telling everyone everything all at once, clearly. And for that child who is overloaded by words quite easily, it's not about the teacher losing their passion. The passion is that, you know, if you ask students which teachers they like, enjoy, the, they like the teaching of the most, it's probably going to be those who have a real passion for their subject, or there'll be a strong alignment there, I think. Um, and I think actually, as a, I teach drama, secondary drama teacher, I still teach drama um, in small um, doses. But the, the, um, I need to believe that teaching drama is the most, important, the most important subject in the curriculum. And I think I need to believe that if I'm to deliver a great thing. So it's not about losing that passion, but it's about really directing that passion to what am I trying to get students to learn? And that's my passion is going to be driven towards them learning the thing that I know from, you know, this curriculum uh, uh, mapping or whatever we've done is important for them to learn at this stage in the sequence of things that they need to learn to get a broad um, knowledge in this subject. It's not about losing this passion, but it's not about using a thousand words when a hundred would do if a hundred is going to really clearly articulate and support students to know it. So the next thing after this in terms of principles of explicit instruction is you've, you've reviewed previous learning, you've then um, introduced some material, but in small steps, and then you ask questions. So you need to know, is this making sense to, to students? And get a bit of formative assessment, a bit of instant feedback. And then you'll, by knowing your students in your class, you'll be tailoring your questions slightly to some with additional challenge to some students, some that are a bit more about the foundational elements of that learning to other students. But you won't go, you've got send, so I'll exclude you from my questioning. You tailor and target your questions accordingly. And you might need students to be able to ask, answer them in specific ways. So it might be that we're class mini whiteboards and everyone holds theirs up and that's your way of involving a certain child. Or it might be you give two options or you prepare a child that you're about to ask them a question in a minute and here's what it is. You know, there are a range of strategies in the teacher's toolbox, clearly, for how to do that. But asking questions 
is going to be you getting that. If you talk about adaptive teaching, asking questions is your way of going, okay, who, do they get it? And do they all get lots of it? Or do a large swathe of them not get any of it? And then you tailor what you're doing accordingly. So again, this is a model that this is a framework that's built not with send particularly explicitly in mind, but it makes total sense for me. So the next thing is about providing models. So um, uh, well, if, I, if I'm going to teach things, I need to help students to sort of arrange things in their brain a little bit with what information hooks onto what things they already know. And if there's three or four things that I'm teaching them today, how are they grouped? How do they link to one another? So there's a bit of a model there. And then in terms of completing a task, actually, I might need to show them a bit of a framework for how to do it, a structure for how to make a sentence the way I'd like it to be, or how to use a formula to solve the, the problem that I need um, students to then solve. So I show them that, I provide them with that model. I might even provide an example live in front of them so that they can see the thinking process and that metacognition, which I'll get to later, that process of how to do it. And then you don't just go then as a teacher, off you go, you're ready, because we need more, you know, this evidence suggests strongly, including student percent, that you need a strong teacher-led approach at the beginning. And there'll be some listening to this going, but I work in early years and it's all about child-led learning and exploring. And, and, and there's something valid in that, I'm sure. Um, I think as, as children get older and the, the, um, the content gets more complex, actually what the evidence suggests is that sort of child-led, let's explore and, and lead our own learning is less effective because the teacher's got the, essentially the teacher should have the expertise and the subject knowledge in that room. And it's not about imparting it blindly. It's not about providing university lectures, but it's about knowing that that teacher is the expert and needs to guide that learning. So once that process has happened at the front, it's then about guiding the student practice. So it could be that, you know, if there are 10 questions, the teacher, it's sort of I do, we do, you do. You know, question number one, I model on the board for students. Question number two, I write the first couple of words. I ask for students for the next bit. I forget the step that I do for the next bit. What step do I follow here? Oh, yes, I do that. And that goes on the board. And it's co-constructing before students are ready to do that. And when you think students are ready for independent practice, you check student understanding. You might just ask, anyone got any questions? We know that's an imperfect way of checking understanding. It's more likely if we um, actually use questions to find that because students you know, will just say, yes, don't they? I understand because of that sort of exposure often. And then once we have a high success rate of lots of students being able to follow the steps or understand the content correctly, we then can think most students are ready for independent practice here. Most students are ready to go and do it but actually I'll need to provide scaffolding for some. And I'll come on to scaffolding a bit later again as well. So and then, sorry, I just yeah, want to yeah. touch on, so again, if we, we talk about all these things and it, it makes so much sense, not as a, oh, this is a new thing. You probably come across this in so many parts of your life without really realizing it. Um, and when you think about a child, let's say I'm going to take a secondary school. You are the uh, drama teacher. You literally spend your life doing drama. You're, in, you're embedded in drama. You've taught drama the last five lessons. It's your sixth lesson of the day or fifth lesson of the day. You're still in drama mode. But these children are coming in from maths or from science. They're in science mode. So having that review kind of goes, is mentally bringing them into that space and that room. So I've done football coaching when my daughter was younger, coaching the team. They turn up on a Thursday, every Thursday or Friday, whenever it was. It's like, why? Well, so I haven't seen you for six days since the last match. You've had all this stuff going on in your life, which is in reality probably a lot more important than playing football. But right now, I need to get you thinking about football. So what did we do last week in training? Ask them. 
How did the match go? What did we do well? So we're asking those questions, right? And you kind of, you're sitting there bringing them into the room and then getting them ready on those foundations. Go, oh, we did that. Oh, yeah, I did that. Uh, right. Now, this is the next step. Yeah. And you do it when you go to the dentist. How are you today? So last time you came in, we did this. Today we're going to, and it gives you a review. Partly it gets him into where he was with you. but And you do it lots of things. You, you have a phone call. So how are you? Did I tell you about this? I mean, where was I up to? And we just do these little reviews of previous learning or previous conversations or previous where we're up to in so many places. It just gets your head in the moments. You walk in, see a friend. How are you? When did we last see each other? Four weeks ago. Oh, so I've not told you about this. It, it just gets you in that moment. It reactivates that experience, doesn't it? And in a classroom setting, I think it's especially important if you've really thought about that curricular mapping and um, working with schemas, I think it's it's called where you're thinking actually what's the order of learning here what hierarchically you know what's the foundation that students need before they move on um and so actually if you're if you've got a really well-designed curriculum then reviewing the previous thing will really help you with the with the new thing whatever that is but also there's um there's ebbinghauser's forgetting curve which some people might know which is um an experiment that i don't know i have to say i don't know when it when it was done but it talks about how um, if you are taught something on day one and that's it, then by day six, you've forgotten most of it. If you learn something on day one and then you revisit it on day two, then by um, day six, you've forgotten some of it. But if you learn something on day one, revisit it on day two and three and four, then by day six, actually, you've got a really secure knowledge of it and it's in your long term memory. And that's potentially not there forever. But actually, the last bit about this explicit instruction in the Rosenshine sort of model of it is weekly and monthly review. So you're sort of frequently um, asking students to, to remember things, to retrieve them from their long term memory so that they exist more securely within there. And again, if we think, you know, I've worked with teachers who tell me that this child um, just can't remember anything from one lesson to the next. You know, they just can't remember. They can't retain things. And I always really challenge that very strongly. I feel passionate about when teachers tell me, you know, a child is lazy or can't remember or these very fixed things. I think it's, um, it's a real abdication and, and, and it's a real, you know, failure to accept either what's going on for that child or also or, or and or what you're doing as a teacher for them in the classroom. So if a child's not remembering something, then we need to be as teachers need to be reflective on why that is. And I'm not saying that's an easy thing. But actually, have I got those routines in my classroom where I'm asking good targeted questions that help children to remember previous content? Um, am I teaching things in a way that isn't just me lecturing from the front for 10 minutes, but is reinforced by some really good, clear visuals that support what that specific thing is I'm trying to teach and also has pause and has processing time and has me asking questions to check understanding and has students doing some kind of task that will help me to check if they've understood it, but also help them to, to cement it in their long-term memory. So um, actually, it should be more about the teacher. If a child, you know, in inverted um, commas, can't learn, it's about me, the teacher, going, what am I doing that's not enabling them to learn and to retain um, um, lesson to lesson? I remember when they did the engagement model, there was a big pilot back in 2018, and they talked about different ways of judging the engagement model. And one, one of the reviews was, um, this is more about judging a teacher than a child. Because if you know your children well, at whatever level, you know them and you know what really gets them, they're going to be, you, can, you should be able to get that lesson really engaging. Yeah. 
if you literally know that right now everyone's watching the Great British Bake Off or something, and actually a lot of the kids are watching it, why not somehow bring it into or use that as part of your lesson or engage? You, you know your children. Use something they know, you, to engage them, yeah? You've got to teach them binary, yeah? Which no one generally likes binary. It has a couple of uses, but generally not much. Um, but if I have to teach it to people, you're going to get really bored and your game's going to... So my job is to write, so how can I get Gary to do um, this, okay? And my job is to, as a teacher is to get you engaged, yeah? Because if you're not engaged, you're not going to learn it in the first place. The whole point of getting the... That's the job of a teacher is, this is what I've got to teach. How am I going to get... How am I going to deliver this? How is it going to be engaging? How am I going to get that embedded? So using all these strategies, what is the approach I'm going to use to get this to work? And if you're not doing that and that child isn't engaging, is sitting there bored, is sitting there not listening, they're not remembering because they didn't, weren't even listening. They weren't engaging. So there's nothing really to remember. Sure. And, and that's the challenge for teachers, isn't it? It's sometimes you may not have written that curriculum yourself or even if you have, what you think is, is, is wonderfully fascinating and you're passionate about may not align with the children's interests. But I think we know that the best teachers um, can make their subject something that others that you can make the students really passionate about. And actually there can be some obscure historical event on the curriculum that you feel, as long as you imbue that passion yourself as a teacher, you can get students really caring about within the battle of whatever, was it King So-and-so or whoever who was the real you know, force for good here. And actually some of the most electric moments in class are when you see students getting really passionate about something that is totally outside their, of their own um, terms of reference. And we don't need to relate it back to Premier League football in order for them to get it because they can get it because it's fascinating of, on its own merit. And that's, um, that's where I think the real good stuff happens, is, isn't it? Is where, um, is, is where we can get students to, to care about our subject um, when they didn't previously or when they wouldn't automatically or when there's no obvious reason, reason to. Yeah, because sometimes, sometimes it's a context. You read something in a book and you're going, yeah, and? And then you might say that and the teacher looks at you and goes, do you really understand this point? It's like, no, because I'm 13 and I've read a sentence in the book about the 1800s. So of course I don't understand it. And then the teacher kind of sets it all up. And you're going, right, so think about this. And you get it, you're going, well, that actually is. That's, that, okay, yeah, that is. Yeah, and you start going, so, like you talk about the... Um, the processing power to go to the moon is, uh, it was like this much. And you're going, well, yeah, that's so it, people realize that actually there's some stuff we did back in the past was pure on the edge of your seat stuff on the edge of technology, pushing everything. Um, and there'll be things that, but it's important to remember when you are delivering this really interesting part is something hooked you in to that. Something hooked you in at the beginning to that. What you know about it now wouldn't hook you. It's something hooked you in at the beginning into that. And it's trying to make, try, that's the bit you've got to share. It's that's the bit that got you in. Not the, not the tiny little details you're paying attention to now when you love it. What is it that got you in there now? What is it you went, actually, I saw that and it was amazing because that's the bit I think you might hook onto people. Yeah. And I think people make the mistake of thinking about explicit instruction that it's just deliver a lecture. And clearly it isn't. And clearly we're working with children and young people who need something that's teacher-led and, and well-structured and supported, but also has a lot of, you know, increasingly over an activity or a lesson or a series of lessons becomes more about students, is, is more student-led over time, but not, it's not empty student-led. There's some 
um, research by I think Adam Boxer about science practicals and saying he does he does science practicals only sort of towards the end of a topic when students have got a really secure knowledge. So it's not about doing the science experiment to explore. It's about doing the science experiment and really understanding the scientific principles that go that 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 make that thing happen, whatever that reaction is. Um, and so actually it's not empty. It's not sort of, oh, the blue things turn red. Actually, it's, you know, I, I have a secure understanding of the chemical compounds or whatever it is. And that's that's means that this is now more meaningful. And I think you can apply that that sort of to any subject that actually real, great, clear teacher led work with a slow transition towards student led work over could be over a 10 minute period, over a lesson, over a series of lessons, actually support students to to then be meaningfully and successfully independent. Because I think if we go if we go towards student led independent learning too quickly, Actually, that's the worst thing you can do for students with SEND because um, they may need a bit more of that structure and support and scaffold in order to then be able to succeed independently. Um, what, what I think we sometimes do is the teacher might do a very brief input at the beginning, independent work, off you go. And then the teacher's running around like a you know headless chicken trying to get round to all the students with SEND to do all that extra sort of uh, teaching that they didn't really spend the time doing in the first place because they wanted students just to just to be starting to be independent too soon. And actually by holding on to that a bit uh, for a bit longer as a teacher, it can support all learners, but it makes total sense, especially for students to ascend. Not an approach which is about child-led learning when students don't have a secure understanding of the elements of what they're exploring or completing, but actually that really supports a secure understanding first before then students go to practice a bit more. It's not it's not directly and strictly true. I think of every phase, every subject, but I think it. And, and, but I think it's a really good principle um, and, and works much more than it doesn't. I like that bit of doing the science experiment later on within the topic because often you think we do that first. You go, oh wow, what happened? And you do it, and kind of your interest kind of fades. <laughs> yes, yeah, oh, that yeah. was a wow thing. Yeah, what is it? Yeah. Oh, I was a whole lot of chemical formulas. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, the red thing turned blue, but now I'm just writing, so I'm not. I'm less interested. Yes, I agree. But if you if you think about the same, if you started off with the red thing turned blue, you go, wow, that was right. It turned blue. Well, let's do this. Oh, okay, I'm not getting a bit bored of this now. But it's, I remember um, we did Romeo and Juliet. And uh, let's watch Romeo and Juliet, and you watch it. Well, I'll now explain what happened. And there was a take it, so I was like, it would make much more sense to kind of get people to the point they can understand the film rather than watching a film or a play for however many hours going, I'm not quite sure I got on. I think they two, those two like each other. Why, why was there so much? If you actually sit there and explain a lot of the context, a lot of what some of that language with the, um, um, different meanings and things like that and go through it all and go, right, now you've got all this skills and knowledge and now you sit there and you're knowing when they say one thing, they might be meaning something else and you've got all of this going on. Now let's watch this play or this film. Yeah, or now let's, re- let's read this scene now that we've got a fundamental overview of the, the facts within the scene. Actually, now we can... Now we're going to read it and it's going to be much more meaningful because I've pre-taught you some of that vocabulary. Um, we've explored a bit about each character. It's not about teachers lecturing from the front, but it is about teachers strongly guiding that learning. And it starts with a teacher-led approach. It's, it's, if you think about the, the most extreme example is let's watch this half hour program in Spanish and then I'm going to teach you Spanish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. It's if you teach them the Spanish, you teach them that and then you watch it, you're then going to go, okay, 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 I'm picking up the odd word, okay, something about fishing, <laughs> or whatever. 
it kind of, that is the most extreme, but it, it makes a lot of sense that actually you're giving them the pr- preparation, you're preparing them before they do something, which is often not how things happen. You often, as you grow up, you dive into something, you go, well, that didn't work. And you might then never get back to it for ages because you don't know why it didn't work because you never had the skills. Yeah. And there are clearly, you know, people could defend the opposite position as well. People could say, actually, it's got to be much more about children's excitement. Okay, what's this? What's this in discovery? And of course, there's a place for discovery and for, you know, you want children to be curious about their learning. Um, But actually, it's not it's not about denying that, but it's about starting from I'm going to make sure you've got the knowledge to make that an informed curiosity Um, when you go to do your really creative writing. We've actually not just gone, here's a pen off you go, but we've 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 taught a particular skill or a particular literary technique that then it enables a child to when they are in that phase of curiosity and independent work, they can do much better because of the work that's happened. And and also aside from the fact that you can argue either point, the evidence around what support students were send is that a that as I've talked about, explicit instruction there as the first of those five approaches is really you know, is a best bet for what's going to support students to make, to make progress. Um, many years ago, my daughter's were in primary school. We did amazing. Uh, it was a school trip at the start of the year. It was always secret. So literally only the staff and governors knew, and a couple of parents, if they needed to, knew at the start of that morning where the whole school was going, including reception, who'd only been in for three weeks. And they go on the school trip and parents come along and this one, we said, we need quite a lot of parents and you need to bring your swimming gear. And uh, we didn't tell them where we were going. We got on the coach and we went to the Olympic Park, which was an hour and a half away. And the kids realized, and they'd done a load of work all over the last three weeks. It was a big project about sports and we had Olympians come in. It was a real big build up and lots of things about coaching and training and all when they got there when the people came in they talked about that relationship and listening to the coaches and learning from the coaches and they did all of these building blocks yeah all these building blocks over a three-week period with olympians coming so when they went to the olympic park they literally saw it and they knew what it was they didn't go we're at the olympic park what's that they knew the moment they saw it wow we're here we went into the velodrome. They knew what went in. They weren't just going, oh, that's nice. They knew exactly what went on in there. They knew everything. We went through, we went to the copper box. We went to the swimming pool. They all went swimming um, in the swimming pool. So those who could swim over a certain amount were allowed to go into the big Olympic pool where the Olympians, and they swam in there and did lengths and others went in there. And we had, it was so much fun. And then we went off. And then what someone, someone knew Tom Daly and they knew he was going to be there that day and they'd arranged the timing. And with the whole school went and watched Tom Daly train, which you just sit there and go, wow, I'd sit there and watch it. Yeah. And it is, it's amazing. So, but again, we've done three weeks worth of work, really helping people to understand about the Olympians, about the hard work, about the training. And again, we sit in there watching them train. And even that was a teaching moment. We weren't just sitting there enjoying it, but they sit there and go, watch Tom Daly, watch him. Yeah. He dives. He comes out. What did he do with his head? What did he do with the head? The moment he, he looked, where did he look at the coach? Why did he look at the coach? He wanted their reaction. He was listening to them. He was looking for the feedback. Yeah. But also if we think of that, the opposite approach that school could have taken, it could have been a real research project, child-led, uh, you know, thing. And now there, there is a place for that clearly. And it's good sort of homework and project tasks potentially, but actually then all students get different things. Some students get some very extraneous information and the core you know, 
five, 10 bits of learning content that you want all students to know about London and how it changed during the Olympics or about the Olympic movement and its origins in ancient Greece. Actually, students will all, no student will have the secure foundational understanding that you want them to have. If you've really thought about what's important for students to learn about this, then it needs to be taught. And, um, and research has its place, clearly. But to do that as an entirely child-led um, project approach, well, then I, I think that um, you, students would miss out on key elements of that learning. They'd also discover things that, you know, you hadn't anticipated and that would be a positive. But, you know, there needs to be a secure sort of understanding of what, what's the content here that we'd need the students to get um, as well as any additional. But if they did that trip first and they did all that work afterwards, it would be they weren't really looking for it on the day. They were just enjoying the day going, oh, I'm at Olympic Park. I don't know how what this is. I've never seen the Olympics because I'm quite young, might be a reception. I've not seen this. I've not been in. I don't know what this means. Oh, they, they played football here or they did this here. They did that. They didn't look for things. And then they would have gone back. And, Do you remember when we see that? It's like, well, no, because I wasn't looking for it. Whereas they did all that prep work beforehand. So when they went and did that thing, they were looking for things. They were looking for those indicators to tell them what had happened or what was going to happen or what this. And it's the same with that science experiment. Yeah, you're watching it, so it's heating it up. When it gets to a certain temperature, it's going to turn blue. When you're watching that film and you've got all this knowledge and you've got this experience, you're saying this up. <laughs> She's not saying that. She's meaning something. It just helps you then look for that information. Whereas if you did it the way around, yeah, I, I, I sat here for watching two hours of Romeo and Juliet or I watched the science bit, but I didn't really pay attention. Yeah, yeah, because you haven't got that knowledge. And that, that links to the second approach of these five in this SEN in mainstream guidance report is cognitive and metacognitive strategies. So, so within, you know, moving on from explicit instruction slightly, although they're all linked clearly, is that when you're, when you're teaching, you know, when you're giving students information, actually you need to think about that cognitive load. And so you, there, are, there are things within cognitive science that I think it's become, it's become quite fashionable, hasn't it, cognitive science? Um, I think there's a lot in it, and I think there's a lot in it for SEND, personally. Again, I don't think it's the answer to every challenge that you have when, when, that you may have when teaching students with SEND. But actually, it makes sense. So if we're thinking of cognitive science as partly as techniques that support students to have secure information, information securely in their long-term memory, which it makes sense that a lot of students with SEND will find that hard, not all by any means, but some. So in terms of retrieval practice, we've talked about you know, reviewing prior content before coming onto the new things and doing that fairly regularly so it's more likely to stay in, in, in your long-term memory. That clearly makes sense for students with SEND amongst others. Dual coding, so this idea that you have an image that, or a diagram or visual or put some information into a table, some way of visually representing the thing that you're trying to teach uh, supports that the information to go into that visual channel and not just that verbal channel. So it's a way of another way of making sure that this information could try and stick in students' minds through having some kind of visual that they can come back to or, or, or see in their mind that's going to help them to, re to, to recall it. Useful for all students, I would say, but particularly useful for students who struggle when words become too much. Let's say a child with a speech language and communication need, perhaps who struggles with their receptive language, having an image there that's not just sort of silly gimmicky icons all over a slide, that's a distraction, but something that really goes yeah, the relationship between these two characters or these three historical characters is this, and there's arrows and a word that makes sense. Or if we've had a class discussion about pros and cons, it's in a table. It's, we've thought about how to organise that information to support students. And then 
things around interleaving and spaced learning, where there are things a bit less evidence, but it's saying don't cram essentially. And it's saying don't just master multiplication and then forget all about it and move on to division. Whenever you're doing that kind of task, if you're working on multiplication, throw in a couple of division questions as well so that you're training your brain to be a bit more flexible about not only now I know one thing really well, and then that sort of fades as I learn the other thing really well, but to keep both those things or to keep a number of things. So, so if you're doing a test at the beginning, sorry, like a sort of review task at the beginning of a lesson, and there are five questions, four might be on what we did last week, but one might be on what we did a term ago. So we're trying to keep that fresh as well. So there's these techniques within cognitive science that are about supporting students to have, a, have knowledge securely in their long-term memory. It makes total sense for students to send, many students have said, among others. And then the other sort of bit of cognitive science, as I, as I see it, is about managing that cognitive load. So not trying to teach everything all at once. And this is something I think that Senkos can, you know, I think some Senkos are patting themselves on the back a lot, really going, we've been saying this for years and everyone else is catching up, which is lovely when that happens. But actually it makes real, that relationship between um, whoever's leading on the development of teaching in your school and the Senko really important, but also a real opportunity because you should be wanting to say lots of the same things. So let's chunk what I'm saying, so I'm not delivering four bits of really abstract, complex information all at once, but it's done in bits, with pauses, with students then trying something, with some questioning. We focus on the core content. We don't spend a thousand words talking around the topic. We're a bit more tightly focused than that, and we can still talk with passion. We can still deliver with a rich vocabulary, but we're really thinking, what do I want students to know? And we're basing, as teachers, what we say and what we do around what we want them to know. And then in terms of managing that cognitive load, so we're, we're trying to not overload and make things feel overwhelming, we do the worked examples. So we show something on the board, we narrate that process. I'm stuck on this. Let's remember what that word meant. Oh, yes, it means this. I pop it on the board there, for example. Um, and I've talked about working with curricula where it's clear that week one builds into week two, which builds into week three, and that term one builds into term two in some way. And so actually we, we've thought about what do students, what should students be learning today? And does that, have they got the foundational knowledge in order to make that a reality? You can't, I don't, I'm not a mathematician, but I don't think you can really learn about decimals unless you've learned about fractions first. I'm willing to stand, willing to stand corrected on that. But that's the way it makes sense in my head is the pizza cut into six slices before you look at what that is. Um, you know, as a fraction, then as a percentage, and then as a decimal, potentially. So, so you're just thinking about the order and not doing everything at once and having something visual to support that and, and ways in which students can retain it in their memory. So, so if we talk about cognitive strategies, it's a, I think it's a very fancy way of saying helping students with actually knowing things and making sure they can keep knowing and learning things and, and remembering things that we taught them a while ago. And these cognitive science would suggest that there is there are ways to do that in particular that that teachers can fairly easily adopt into their practice without having to to um to retrain essentially yeah and it sometimes you do have to point out you have to be quite we're doing this which builds on top of this or remember we did this last week we're now going to use that so sometimes you have to be explicit in those links sometimes they'll get it it'll be really obvious okay we did that last week i'm now moving on I did that last term, I'm now moving on. But sometimes you're sitting there going, we've done all of this, we're now moving that on. Because sometimes I think maths, as yeah, fraction, decimals, they're quite linked. Yeah. If you're doing that and you're doing conversions of like from grams to a thousand grams, you, that's all kind of interlinked. But when you get into English, 
Sometimes some of those skills aren't so obviously linked. So you might have to um, maybe say, right, so we're going to do this. Last time we did this, this, and this. We're now going to move on to this. I still want to see that. And you can't really do that unless you're already doing that. It's true. And that the features of nonfiction writing are going to be different to, to creative writing, for example. And you say, no, we're not thinking about the things within um, nonfiction writing anymore. This is a different set of rules. But then it would be, with, with this in mind, what I'm talking about, Dale, you might then go, but what? tell me two features of nonfiction writing. We're not doing it today, but it's important that you don't forget that. And so actually you're continuing to recap and review that previous knowledge to, to build, continually build it and support it to be in the long-term memory, not... We haven't done that since September, so by April it's all forgotten, but actually we keep revisiting these things. <clears throat> so the other thing within that, cognitive and metacognitive strategies, so the thing I haven't explored there at all is, is metacognition, of course. Um, and so metacognition being thinking about the process of learning, learning to learn, thinking about thinking, and actually how that there's a strong evidence base to suggest that this is successful for all students, including those with SEND. And so as teachers or teaching assistants, actually, it's about supporting students in how they plan their work, how they monitor their work while they're doing it, and then also how they evaluate um, once they've done it. And then actually, what are, they, what are they planning, monitoring, evaluating? Well, they're thinking about their own task and their understanding of the task, their understanding of the strategies they can use to complete that task, or what they will use, or they are using, or they have used. And then also the knowledge of themselves as well. So do students have a good understanding of I think I'm a bit restless and, and this is going to help me, or I think I've become a bit distracted. So I'm going to close this book and just focus, have this in front of me. So there's some, um, and I think actually this is really pertinent to teaching assistants because teaching assistants are often the, the closest in proximity to students, including sometimes those who send. And so actually for a teaching assistant, before a child starts a task to be able to promote metacognition, I think is really supportive and, uh, and positive. And the evidence would, would, would say that as well. So it might be they, a teaching assistant is saying, have you done a similar task before? And so that child is beginning to think about how they are going to complete this task, not only that the steps are on the board, but actually, oh, yeah, this is similar to what I did before. And then also perhaps what strategies have you used to solve this problem in the past? Or even do you have what you need to begin this task? So we're helping students to think about their own readiness for learning. And then while that sort of metacognitive approach during the learning task might be the TA or a teacher asking questions like, is this strategy you've chosen, is that working? You know, is it working, referring to that on the board, or should we put something in your desk here? Are you finding this challenging, and what are you doing when it's difficult? Well, um, I'm just getting frustrated, but actually that could lead to a conversation of, I'm going to speak to my partner, go back to the book, check on the board, ask the teacher, etc. And then likewise after the session. So if there's some kind of plenary, it could be that we want students to reflect on that, that metacognitive process. Did they accomplish what they set out to, to accomplish? Did they access some support of some kind and did it help them were they motivated or did they give up halfway through and can they do some work on their own resilience so there's there's real you know in this um this second approach from the eef's SENA mainstream guidance report is about cognitive and metacognitive strategies and i think teachers can really i, I hope what what i'm communicating successfully i hope here is that this isn't something you need a PhD in SEND for. These are teaching strategies that are often within the repertoire of teachers anyway, or can be really easily added and shouldn't be forgotten about when it comes to students with SEND. I've met teachers who do these things um, fluently for students without SEND and then get thrown because they've got a one-page summary that says do these six things and they stop doing the basics. So they stop doing these things that actually do have a really good evidence base for SEND because they're thrown by 
um, well, someone told me to use colourful semantics, so I need to now think about that. Actually, that may have its place, but not instead of these real five evidence-based approaches, of which I've only said two, so I'm aware that I need to speed up a little bit to get through the next <laughs> three. I'm trying to keep quiet. I'm literally going, wow, we've had such a long conversation. I'm going to realise we're still on number one, so yeah. I'm going to keep, I'm keep it quiet yeah. to get we've through this. We've finished number two now, so we're getting, we are getting there. <laughs> but I think sometimes, unless it says on that one-page profile he really doesn't respond or she doesn't respond to this, then you you should do it. If it says they struggle with this, it still means you should do it. It just means more support is needed. Exactly, exactly. And you don't ditch metacognition as an approach, but you appreciate that that child might struggle to to sort of reflect on how they completed a task or how they are completing a task, and therefore you change the types of questions that you ask for them. You know, are you focused? Are you really working really well now? Yes or no? Or it could be out of five. How well do you think you're working? in terms of your focus. And that could just be the prompt that child needs to reflect on, actually, I'm on a two out of five at the moment. Um, so is it okay if I just, um, uh, you know, talk to you about the work before I start writing again? Because that's going to help me to refocus. Brilliant, off we go. But I'll move on to that third one, which is scaffolding. And scaffolding clearly means such a broad thing, but there's some important principles within it, I think. So if I take scaffolding broadly to mean not everything we do, which it kind of, I think you could interpret it as such, but more when we're getting students moving towards independent work, what do we do to try and keep them there? Uh, to, sorry, to try and be able to do that as independently as possible. So someone um, said something really obvious to me a few weeks ago, but it's really stuck with me, which is that scaffold, no one wants to live with scaffolding on their house forever. Um, scaffolding is there temporarily while something is being supported or changed with the idea that we're removing it over time. Um, and I think that's, that's a sort of, it's fundamental to that word scaffolding, isn't it? But I never really pictured it or thought of it as a metaphor. But of course, we want to be trying to remove that scaffold over time. So whatever we do, the aim is that it doesn't need to be there forever. Um, and the scaffolds can be lots of different things. So it could be that it's verbal. So it could be I go in and say, what's the task you need to do now? And that's just me checking, you know, that's a sort of scaffold to make to, to, to gauge whether or not that child needs to be have the, the instructions re-explained to them. Or it could be that verbal is sort of reteaching a bit of tricky content, but at the child's desk, having already delivered it to the whole class, because that's what that child needs. It could be visual. So it could be that there's a particular, um, there's some diagrams of what the child will need to complete a task. And there's a picture of the textbook and a pencil or some headphones or whatever it is that that child needs. And so it's that child being able to maintain independence, but has something visual that can support them to, 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 to have that independence because they don't need necessarily an adult going, right, put your headphones on your head, right, let's, I'll go and get a pencil for you over here. And don't forget that, you know, this is the textbook you need. Actually, students can often work with more independence and it might just be that visual scaffold. Someone might need to point to it on the board or it might need to be on their desk for that to be actioned and, you know, for that to be meaningful for them. But there's a way to maintain an appropriate um, and high-ish, depending on need, level of independence with a visual scaffold. Or it could be something written down and, you know, that could be sentence starters, for example. It could be a writing frame where paragraph one, introduction, paragraph two, reasons for, paragraph three, reasons against, etc. So, so um, but whatever it is, we should be committed to that print. So a couple of principles, I think. One is to do it in the least stigmatizing way. So if so does something have to be on that child's debt, on like five children's desks in particular who are on the send register, or could it be that we, we put a few around the class and we just gently sort of nudge and we gently discourage other students from using it based on where they are? And we say to this child, would this be helpful actually? I've got some sentence starters here. You've got your own sentence starter, brilliant. Well, feel free to ignore it, but it's there. And it could be that over time, 
Or actually, does it need to be on, the, on children's desks at all? Can it be on the class whiteboard for anyone to access with no stigmatising? Just some gentle prompting to have actually put what you might enter in your introduction on the board there. Do you want to use that? So a little bit of prompting and nudging, but not having to go, you're the child who needs a separate worksheet when everyone's working in their book, for example. Just to touch on scaffolding is, um, when you talk about it's not a permanent thing is, when I just make it very clear to that when we're talking about that is if you're supporting a child to um, with those sentence starters, after a while they've got experience and you can remove that scaffolding for sentence starters. But then you, when you move on, you might be then putting scaffolding back in for the next bit. So it's not you're not going to be. It's not like I'll only be scaffolding for this child for the first three months. It's you might always be scaffolding, but or you may not. But it's not going to be the same scaffolding. Is you might be scaffolding at this point, and that will hopefully, as you put that scaffolding in, he no longer needs that support. So you can remove that support. But now he's got that. We're moving on to the next bit. But I do need scaffolding. Absolutely. There. Yeah. When you raise the bar, you know, it's like doing another bit of building work in your house, I suppose, isn't it? And so we'll put the scaffolding back up because it's needed for now. But still, with that principle that we're going to try and make sure this child isn't dependent on that. And so, what actually, what could that look like? It could be that if we go with sentence starters as the example there. It could be that um, we put the sentence starters on the, on, on the class whiteboard for the whole class to potentially use. We might discourage a few students and discreetly encourage a few others to use them, but they're there for anyone to use. And then the next time, and that could be later that lesson, um, then the following week, the following term. So the, 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 the timescale is, is, is not fixed. It would be silly to try and make it so. But this, the next time, when we're thinking that scaffold can be um, can be reduced slightly and not removed. It could be that we're co-constructing the sentence starters. So we need some good sentence starters here. What could they be? And we question and get some ideas from the class, including students with SEND. Not only are, you know, high-flying neurotypical child, don't just get them to do all the work for us, but from a range of students, we get some sentence starters, pop them on the board. So we've co-constructed that scaffold instead of it being totally from the teacher. And then it could be that in the next phase, which could be the next lesson, the next week, the next term, whatever it needs to be for that cohort, actually, then you're able to go, um, students should be able to create their own sentence starters here. I've committed to that principle of removing the scaffold. And what I need to do as a teacher is just um, quality assure. So go up to a child who's um, not on your send register, perhaps, and say, what sentence starter are you going to use here? You know, or how you start, how you start, have you started that sentence? And they say theirs out loud, a bit of quality assurance. You go to a child with send, who may may or may not, but in this case may struggle with their learning. And you say, what's your sentence starter? And it may be fantastic and you've got the assurance you need. It may be not so fantastic and you talk to them about how they could improve it. Or it may be that they've heard their partner's one and get an idea there for how they can start their sentence. So it's still committed to that principle of removing over time. And then it could be that when you move on to a new topic, period in history, whatever the thing is relevant to your subject, it may be that you go back to the beginning again. And yeah, I've got some sentence starters that, that use that vocabulary that we learned recently or that use some of this subject specific vocabulary that, that I want you to use um, in, this, in this written task. So still with that, that commitment to trying to remove the scaffold over time um, and, also, and doing it in the least stigmatizing way, but going, you know, how can I support students to be as independent as they can, but knowing that I want them to be able to succeed and access this task without needing me over their shoulder all the time. Actually want all students to, what I don't like is when the teacher sort of says to the whole class, so here's your instructions. I've taught you what you need to know. Off you go. And they go straight running around to two or three children and, and, and get involved straight away. Because then children learn, I don't really need to listen to what that teacher was saying before because 
someone comes and does it for me straight away anyway. They come and explain it at my desk anyway. What we need to make sure is that teachers are explaining something in a way where all students can understand the task and can understand at least enough of the content to be able to start. We need to make sure that question number one isn't impossibly hard, so it turns students off from even trying in the first place, but the student, that questions get progressively harder, probably. But then actually, all, when it's three, two, one, off you go, actually, that's what we expect. We expect, unless there are reasons where children are very dependent because they, for example, you know, have a physical disability and need, need constant scribing, or, you know, there will be, there'll be valid reasons, of course. But actually, in most cases, the most important thing they can do, the teacher can do at the beginning of that task is stay back. You've got the, I've, I've done a brilliant job of, of explaining, of teaching the content, and there are some appropriate scaffolds around the class or on the class whiteboard or at a desk. And therefore, I should expect all students to be able to be in this independently. That's, that's I think, what we're aiming for. And it's a little idealistic, but I think captures the good principles of scaffolding there. Yeah. And there might be a it's different specific children might need some stability. But again, if you just follow the main principles, the long term is the fact that they will be able to do that. They might just be your child. You do things very specific for them. That will always be the case. But even then, you're putting a scaffolding because the whole point is the whole point of this whole learning strategies is if we were if we got to the point where we're going right, this is the last twelve things you've got to learn, and I'm scaffolding you on these last twelve things. I remove the scaffolding, and you've learned everything you need to learn. There should never need to be any scaffolding. But it's because in school we're continuing. It's not the last 12. It's the last 12 at the moment. Then we're going to put another 12, and there'll be another 12. And because we're continually pushing, it's like continually extending your house. As long as you're continually extending your house, you're going to need scaffolding. It's when you stop extending your house and you just, you're just going, yeah, I'm quite happy where I am now until to, something yeah. else happens. Yeah, and to extend, <laughs> yeah, to extend the analogy further, actually, you're, the, more you, the more you do it, the more value you're adding to that house, aren't you? And therefore, you know, the more we, the reasons are to raise the bar, scaffold a bit more, remove it over time, raise the bar, scaffold a bit more, remove it over time. I think that's a really good model. Um, and of course, that scaffolding can mean lots of things. It's not all about, um, some of it's about like, supporting the process of writing, as I talked about with, with sentence starters, but some of it might be about scaffolding in a group to support, to help structure that group work. Everyone has a role. Or they have a bit of card that you have it when you're to, you know when you're talking you you're holding that and to, to to provide some kind of structure there for example it could be scaffolding that I talked about earlier that considers what materials you need a pen the textbook headphones whatever or it could be a scaffold that helps children to understand what the instructions are if a, if a child you know their the focus and attention waned a bit when you're giving your instructions they don't need to be completely lost as long as those instructions are written as a scaffold on the board so that you know children can. can can work out what they were if they if they lost it for whatever reason. So scaffolds can you know clearly mean a range of things, but actually can can um can provide can build on that journey towards independence for children with send. I think really nicely. So are we up to number four? Now, yeah, we're on to number four now, Dave. Yeah, we're we're, <laughs> we're really getting close to the end. So flexible grouping is the fourth one. So um, it's that idea that we want to group children in a way that is not permanent. We don't want to see um, students. Um, abilities and needs and difficulties as fixed, but where we want students to be group to be doing group work, and clearly we should be either for a bit of um, small group tutoring, a bit of collaborative learning, a bit of reteaching of a certain thing. Actually, let's not make that permanent. So let's try and have that more graduated approach, the assess, plan, do, review, where we're always thinking, who needs help with what at the moment? And so it might be that rather than having this is my um, bottom table or this is my bottom set group. Actually, we go, you know, I'd like the four of you to stay on the carpet or can you four come to this table at the back? We're just going to go over something. Just, you know, I just want to make sure you're all fine with this. But it's the idea that, you know, we bring people together 
in a group, perhaps because they, they're all struggling with a particular, you know, to grasp something that's been taught to the whole class already, and then they go back. But that's not a permanent thing. It's not, you're my intervention, kids, and it always sort of feels that way, which we just know demotivates children and 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 stigmatises them and creates sometimes even a bit of a social, you know, group of its own because other children are going, well, they're the ones who, you know, they're the ones who need help and I don't. And then also um, that with that grouping, it could be that we bring children together who have, who, who, there are strengths with this particular thing we're teaching within that group. And one or two children may have mastered it more than others. And there's a chance for a bit of peer tutoring there potentially with this with this topic. So where we're grouping in a way that is fixed, sorry, that it that is not fixed, a way that is temporary and flexible and responsive to what children are struggling with in that moment, rather than being a fixed permanent, I'm a bottom set kid or a bottom table kid. I think you find in certain certain areas. We all, have, we all have a spiky profile. We all do. And there are things when you ask that child to do something, they'll be off. They're great at it because they might have an interest at home, which has led them to do quite a bit of it, which means they're great at it. You move on to something else, they don't have that interest at home. They haven't experienced it. They're now not so good. So do you put them in the bottom group because generally they're not good, or do you put them in the top group? It's, it's never generally fixed. There are things you do really well. I saying, I, we talked about in my, our last podcast, I rearranging sentences, and I use Grammarly, and it's great. But I still can't confidently, and I'll probably get them wrong, a noun, verb, and adjective. I, don't, I can't tell you what they are. But it doesn't impact me. But I, I, I don't know what front-ended verb is, but I do know past progressive. So... We all have things we can do, things we struggle with. I've got a couple of people at work who have list blindness. If you put something on the list, they can't see it. It's quite entertaining. Um, but so you can't just sort of say these are the bright. It's, it's always going to be flexible. There are, with again, when you get into secondary school, you are going to have sets. Um, but even within those sets, you're going to have groups. You're going to have ones which are doing really well because their parents are paying for a tutor or their parents are scientists. They just do science all day at home and they're great. And those who came from a primary school, they didn't do much science. They're, they're, they're clever, but they just haven't got that experience to call on. Or So you have such a diverse within each set of pupils as well. Exactly. And it, it feeds in really nicely with this term that's a bit of a buzzword, adaptive teaching, which features in the MPQ frameworks and the early career framework. And, and actually as I move away from differentiation, which starts with, you know, the, I need to do different things for different learners. Actually, adaptive teaching as a, as a principle, I think is nicer. It's not to say that people who say I differentiate brilliantly are doing terrible things. That's clearly a nonsense to, to think, well, the, you know, anyone using the old term is terrible. Anyone using the new term is wonderful. You know, there's a clear silliness about, about that approach. But where I like that term adaptive teaching is about, you know, all students have the potential to, to achieve lots. And I need to adapt what I'm doing in a in a sort of live and responsive way based on how they're um, how they're accessing the things that I'm teaching and how they're accessing their learning. So it's it, it really embraces that idea that that things are temporary and students um, uh, you know students' strengths and things they're struggling with change over time. They'll grasp one thing quicker than another. And if you stick them in that bottom set and leave them there, then actually what you're saying is you can't really learn any faster or any better than you currently are. So we're gonna we're, you know. So that's what we're going to expect of you forever. And that's clearly, clearly not the most helpful thing for children. I think with this, when you talk about adaptive teaching and scaffolding and differentiation, it's you've really got to think about, which is I think a whole other podcast, to the level of planning. Because if you're being adaptive, 
you can't really plan because if you're planned, you're not adapting. By and large, I agree with you. I think the planning comes within thinking, what's going to be harder here? What do I, what do I anticipate is going to be hard? And what do I, do I anticipate that it's going to be hard for the whole class or some individuals? And then in what I'm doing, how am I catering for that? And also how am I finding that out as I go? So I, I teach a bit. Um, I know that if I've done that process, then I know that I'm going to teach it a bit rather than a lot all at once. And I know that I'm going to question, I might even get students to do a bit of a written task or show me something on a mini whiteboard or, or something that means, you know, so you are, you need to anticipate and you need to think what's a scaffold likely to look like that I won't be able to make in that second necessarily. Sometimes you can. I think some of the best scaffolds are, you know, like I said, so Stickman A's over here, Stickman B's over there, and, the, you know, and they're, they're falling apart because of the, you know, some of the best scaffolds are created live. I really believe that. But actually the planning is around anticipation but then it's not about taking things for granted. And I think the, the most important thing is it's not about denying some students the or pupils the, the access to some of the learning, whereas I think the focus on must, should, could, or differentiation would more typically or could potentially, when done poorly, lead to, um, actually, I'm not allowing you access to this really interesting or relevant or useful bit of curriculum um, because I'm, I'm, I've decided for this and that you won't be able to get there. This is everyone might get to all of it, but I'm going to be adaptive and responsive and, and cater and know what's harder and what's more accessible for all. I've just seen some schools who do some, to me, extreme levels of planning, which are almost like this is, it's either in this lesson, it's one, two or three, it's going to happen. We're either going to do one, we're going to do two or three and that's it. And it's very rigid. And these are going to be the outcomes it's going to get achieved. And then I move on to lesson two. And it's like, I don't, to me, that's not going to work. Um, personally from, I've never taught. So, but for me, just for someone who looks at this world of teaching, doing that level makes no sense. It puts a ceiling on what students can learn, doesn't it? And it's, it says, you're going to need this heavily differentiated worksheet. It's a gap fill, off you go. Now, actually, there are other ways to support learning than a gap fill. And there are other ways to do a gap fill than to go, you, that's for you because of where you are. You know, so, so we don't want to be implicitly or otherwise um, you know, placing that ceiling and what we think students can learn. So that's the fourth one there is about flexible grouping and making sure that we have these sort of temporary ideas of, of what students may struggle with in a particular time. And the final one, which would be close to your heart, I'm sure, Dale, is using technology. So um, it, it, it doesn't, I think it, what the SCN and Mainstream Guidance Report doesn't um, promote particular um, companies' technology within that. I think that wouldn't be the place for it. There is a projects page of the EEF website that looks at certain um uh, programs, some of which are related to technology um, and, and use of technology to support students to do, do that practice. For example, if they just learnt to use, for example, what the difference between a noun, verb, and adjective, there'll be some great computer programs that where you know you click one and it moves on, you click one, and it moves on, and it, it differentiates automatically to give you or it re if you're getting them wrong, it reteaches it to you. If you're getting them all easy, it will give you some harder ones. So there's a real place for it in terms of in terms of that that really helping students do really good practice. But the, the other thing it gives as an, as an example in the report is about use of a visualizer. And it's such a, a key bit of technology, I think, for helping students to go, um, to, to see the learning process live. So the teacher's going, you know, and then I do this, then I need to do this, actually, what, what does that become? And they can just model that whole thing in front of the class. And likewise, children's work can go under it. I, think that, I mean, obviously, teachers can stand at the class whiteboard and do things. So the difference there is slightly less stark. But if we get a child's learning up, and I saw a brilliant English uh, secondary class two weeks ago, 
And this teacher was marking the children's work totally live in front of the whole class. So they they had a task to write a you know a sort of paragraph of text, um, uh, six seven lines or so, and then she would say um, you, and she'd get that she'd get the child's book, put it under the visualizer, and mark it in front of the whole class. Now I think some people would go, that's horrific and exposing. Um, that the proof for me was in the amount of children who had their hand up, including students with send very much had their hand up wanting their book to go under the visualizer. So clearly she set it up in a way that's very safe and secure and doesn't think that making a mistake is something we need to tell you off for or shout at you about, but is, you know, part of the process of learning. Um, but she, she's just marking live in a way where she would do, you know, actually the capital letter here or the word order there or the grammar here, which was helpful for everyone potentially. And then what she was also doing was bringing other students into that conversation. So they're marking each other's work, but done in a, in a way where she can quality assure it, if you like. The problem with peer marking, I think, can be, although I like peer marking, is that there's a teacher, you can't always hear the feedback that one young person's giving another, and that may or may not be correct. But um, but you can you can hear it. Well, what they didn't do is they didn't, you know, put an apostrophe there where they needed to. And as a teacher, you can make sure that that's good feedback, of course. So that that using a visualizer there to involve the whole um, the whole class in the process of of editing a child's work, which will be useful for every child to go that. You know, let me check if that applies to my work as well. So as a piece of tech that I think is is absolutely got huge potential visualizers, primary and secondary, in my opinion. I think you've got to remember is when you, when you see a cross, it's not you've done it wrong, it's an area to learn. And it's changing that kind of mentality. And I, 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 sit, there, I sit there and lots of people jump on that. That's, that could be really bad, that child could be. But as you said, they're putting their hands up. So that teacher's obviously got people to see that if you're getting feedback, you're going to improve. And that's the thing. It's feedback to improve. And if, if I do my, if you do your writing and you're amazing because you're great at English and I'm doing it and I've got my nouns, well, but as it's literally going, Dale, did you see what, how Gary started his? Did you see it when I was marking his? Did you see how he started it and how much more? Whereas when we start with, literally, sometimes doing that comparison between two different pieces of work, it says lots of, uh, there's lots of benefits from that, really are. Exactly. So I think that's a great example of technology. Um, two examples. One is around the using the apps and different programs that can support students with that practice um, or using in Google Forms, Microsoft Forms, that kind of thing, so that students can um, uh, do a, you know, 10 question thing around what they learned that day. And so they're doing that review, which we talked about already as being good to support long-term memory. And it doesn't add enormous amounts to teacher marking because often there's, you know, that's aggregated onto a spreadsheet automatically. And you can see nine out of 10 students got it right or 25 out of 30 got it wrong or, or whatever. And, you know, that really helps you in terms of adaptive teaching to think about what do I need to go back next lesson and, and uh, change that misconception perhaps. Um, and then there's also things around um, that are more specifically to send and particular send needs around speech to text technology or text to speech technology and also using um, and translating materials sometimes again outside the send arena but for students with the AL particularly being able to you know quickly translate things it's not the whole answer students in a school in England it's in their interest that we support them with the development of their English but access to a home language for some elements of the content is clearly going to be helpful for their picking up of the curriculum as well. Um, and so, you know, this is, I know that I I'm preaching to the choir here, Dale. And I think there are some, <laughs> I know there are, I think there's some red herrings with technology where, you know, if the child, if it's not set up in your school to make it work, it can cause children to make less progress, I think. So for a child who then at the beginning of an English lesson needs to go to the inclusion department to sign out a laptop, 
gets to your lesson, needs to go back because it's not on charge. They need to move desks so they can be closer to the wall where the, where the socket is so they can have it on charge. Then they need to turn it on, but the laptop's a bit rubbish because it's a few years old. They can't remember their logins. So they're phoning IT. You know, I mean, it can go on. And then once they do their work, eventually, actually, if they're not distracted by the other things because no one's put any controls on the laptop to, to not allow certain websites or programs or whatever. And then you, you, you can get to a stage where then the child goes away at the end of the lesson, takes their laptop back, hasn't saved the file or hasn't you know put it in a folder that's going to be anything. And no one helps them to print it off and get it to the teacher. I've just listed a dozen problems that are potentially with the use of a laptop in class. But that doesn't mean I'm against them. It's just that that wider piece of thinking needs to take place around, is our equipment suitable? Are the teachers knowing how it's going to be used? Are we using some kind of online document where the child's work it can instantly be accessed by that teacher? Um, and yeah, you know, have we got the tech and do we use it well? My, my and- nephew had that exact same process. He'd get the laptop, he'd sign it out, he'd get to the classroom, he'd turn it on, and it would be dead because the previous person didn't plug it in. So he had to change the laptop. He went through all of that. And when they finally, this is the time I mentioned about he won that award. When he finally got given just a laptop to always use, it all went away. And it is sometimes is you have all these processes in because this is the way we've done it. But it is, to me, it's not a case of we all work this way and we do this stuff, which is very limited. So we'll make it really complicated. We shouldn't really be doing it for one child. Actually, to me, long term, once you can learn to write in paper and correctly end of year six, I personally don't see a need to ever write it. I personally don't think hand joined up handwriting. That's me personally. I literally, I sign things and I fill out the odd form for a mortgage or a something, uh, but I never physically write. And you even find a lot of writers don't even use their fingers. They speak to their phone or their computer. They dictate their stories or their news articles. Um, if you read your news on your phone, you really read how badly they even check it all. Um, so you, so yeah, so I'm a big advocate for tech, but it isn't, it shouldn't be a bolt on. I see a computer, a laptop, an iPad in the same way I see a pencil, a ruler and a calculator. Yeah, it is a different way and we have to embrace them. We need to bring them in. Um, I think it can make a big difference to secondary. Um, I think, but it's got to be in a way that doesn't increase the teacher's workload. And there are lots of ways like those Google forms. You can, there's things like you can get quizzes, you can get cahoots, which will give you to do the marking for you and you get the results. So you literally go, right, here's a quiz. Oh, it's got things. no marking, no going through. I already actually know not only which percentage they got, but they all got question three wrong. It, it will give you that information, which just makes your life easy. You can do that across the, all the set, whatever. And you could, yes, there's lots of benefits which can save time um, and we should embrace it and you can do stuff and it's imaginative. And to me, when you start getting tech involved, especially when you have mats, it's like, well, actually, uh, you've got five drama leads across five secondary schools. Right, let's take an area each. You work on that and we'll give it to all five schools. So now you're just reducing everyone's workload. You're not reducing quality. You're reducing workload. So actually, let's, we now have time to focus on what's important, which is supporting children who need it. And interestingly, you said a couple of things through the podcasting with you about uh, somebody in charge of improving teaching in the school. And I'm literally, I think about some schools I've worked with and gone, don't think there's anyone doing that. She's probably part of the problem because they're so rushed off meeting all these legal demands and league tables that actually 
They never actually have time to sit and think about the teaching and learning, which is actually the crux of everything because they're trying to do the bits, the little bits they need to meet the league tables or to do this or to do that. They're not actually going, right, let's go back to basics, start at the core, build it up from there and everything else will just improve magically. But that's a long, longer project. Whereas if I just buy this new scheme for here and get that person in training, everyone says it works. So I'll just do that. And there's, there's, there's five recommendations in this EEF um, SE Animation Guidance Report. And I hope people will look at all of them and they relate to teaching assistants and to the sort of whole school inclusive environment in the school. But the one I really wanted to come on today, Dale, and thanks for having me, has been to talk about the high quality teaching because I feel like that's where there is a, a bit, um, some people may not know there's an evidence base around um, students with SEND and high quality teaching, and there is. Um, and some people might not know what that means in terms of SEND. And I really hope that, um, that people have enjoyed um, as I certainly have the chance to talk through those um, today. It's, saying, it's been fascinating. One of the things, I, you're always worried that you're going to have me five things and I'm going to only know what three of them are. The two are going to be brand new to me, which will be quite disappointing because if they are new to me, why are they new to me? But they're, they're all five, which I expected without reading the report. I literally went, yep, 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 yep. And it's stuff we do. Um, so high quality teaching is not something I do in the business world, but I would cast, I do high quality leadership. So it's making sure, um, do you have the bits you need? Do you have this? Doing all those sorts of things. And it's like your scaffolding. You do all that as a leader, as in business, we do all that. The reviews, where are we up to, what we're doing. We kind of do that in lots of different ways. And all the stuff we've talked about, it's not just isolated to teaching. It's a lot of it we do in lots of places. So it's not a case of this is something specific just for teaching. We need to do this. It's actually you're doing this in lots of places, but you may not specifically do it. It's like when people go, what's the APDR, SS Plan Do Review Cycle? It's like you literally do it every morning, yeah? When you hear a noise in the morning, you're assessing that through your alarm clock. So that means you've got a plan to get up, then you get up. Then you review, God, it's early. Um, oh, then you sit there going, oh, do I need breakfast? Was my stomach rumbling? No, so I don't need breakfast. But you literally, the ADPR is something you do five million times a day without realizing it. And so we have to show this. It's like, if you're not, and a lot of people do jump to the doing. They don't really assess, don't really plan. They jump to doing, um, which gets dangerous because they start doing things without actually doing anything, any research. They don't review it either. So yeah, doing is everyone's favorite. They love doing something. Because if you're doing it, you're solving a problem. Actually, the assess and the planning, if you spent five times as long doing that, you know exactly what you do, and the doing you then do would be a tenth of the time if you're doing the wrong thing. And that's so much more effective. Exactly. And that's what we talk about being informed by evidence, isn't it? Is it's firstly creating your is it's creating your own evidence base. Is this working for us, for our children? How do I know what does success look like? And is it a reading age or is it something is it attendance at school? Is it something else? But also where there is an external evidence base, not ignoring it, but going, okay, what's what does what do independent, high quality evidence, um, what does that say about this thing that I'd like to do or I'm doing? So and then you so literally you're sitting in your school, you're doing stuff, you review something's not working, so you're assessing kind of what your information done. You're then planning, so you're going to then look at what you can do. So you're looking at evidence-based research, you're looking at these things, we're going to do that, you do it then after a period, you have to review it. Mm, sure. And yeah. then... Is it working for us? Yeah. Is it working? No. Right. Do we throw it out? 
Maybe, maybe not. Do we work out why it's not working for us when it works everywhere else? Ah, oh, the reason is we do it an hour a week and it's not really embedded. Cool. We need to embed it more. Right. So again, it's not a case of it's not working. If it's not working for you, but it works for everyone else, why is it? So it is, you're spending lots of time on the, uh, the reviewing, the assessing and the planning. The doing part is the bit that everyone seems to think is the most important place to put all the time. It's where you're putting time doing it, but the other three bits, make sure you're doing the right things, you're doing it the right way, you're delivering it, you're embedding it. That's what the other bits give you. So, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, the APDR I love, but I think a lot of people miss bits out of it, miss the importance of it. Yeah, but you make a good point that we can over-technicalise some of these things, can't we? Actually, it is what you do, you know, and likewise with high-quality teaching. It's not the latest strategy to come out of this organization who've, you know, who are advocating for this. Actually, it's a set of good principles that then occasionally need something a bit different because this child's not quite responding in the way that we'd hope with to these approaches, but they do generally work for students for send, not forgetting that sometimes there are individual adaptations we make and other things we need to do and the importance of building good relationships and working with parents, all those things as well. But and it's been a pleasure talking about those five evidence-based approaches to, to high quality teaching for SEND or quality first teaching for SEND, but we'll go with high quality perhaps um, <laughs> today. So thank you. Yeah, so we almost touched on the whole differentiating to scaffolding and um, adaptive, but we'll st- we stayed with us a whole other podcast. It's the same sort of thing, but I think, but it's, I think differentiation, you're playing for a couple of different things. Scaffolding, it's the same thing with supporting and adaptive is, similar to scaffolding i would say in planning but we'll leave that there okay, I think. Leave we won't there. dive Good into idea. that Next we won't go into that um thanks for coming on the show today i've really really enjoyed going through all of this same thank you um because I, I sit there and i'm, I'm not i've no, i've never taught i wanted to but i found out how much work was involved my mum was teaching and i chickened out um but it is something I've, I've been in education my entire life working with b squared and stuff but I always sit there and I like always taking that education stuff and putting it into the real world. So it's why I always sit there talking about doing stuff in the real world, taking what we do in teaching, well, we do it here anyway, because it makes so much sense. And I like taking, well, why we do that? Where do I do that? Why do I, why don't I? And realize that again, all the stuff we do in teaching, we do in so many parts of our lives already. So we know it makes sense. Mm, exactly. We know it makes sense. But when you're doing something with an adult and they go, when was the last year? Four weeks oh, I've got some stories to tell you. It's an adult to an adult. When you're an adult to a child and you go, when did we last cover this? And they look at you blankly. You kind of, you've got to take the ownership of the whole conversation. You've got to sit there and go, well, you're not going to tell me when we last did this because you probably won't remember. So I've got to nudge you all the different ways. So that's the real difference is adult to adult. You're kind of on that conversation. You know where you are. You kind of know the rules of these conversations and the, um, etiquette around them, but the children in that classroom, you've got to do the same thing, but the other person doesn't know the rules yet because they're still quite young. They didn't know there were rules in conversations. So it is going to be, okay, so where are we doing this? What did we do last week? Cool. So did you do any of that? Show me how you talk about it. We did, yeah. That's thing. As a, again, as a football coach, first thing we did, what did we do last week in training? Blah, 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 blah. Great. Did you do any of that in the match? I already know the answer. It was a yes or it's no. I can pick out individual players. Again, you're literally then going, yes, you did this. Remember you did this, blah, blah, blah. So you're really getting them in the moment. And there's a lot of that, that quality first teaching, all that stuff, I think really just makes so much sense. It just makes so much sense. And obviously you've then got stuff around this. You've got the communication-friendly environments. 
You've got the whole language skills, like verbal reasoning and stuff, which are going to be a big part of this. But that is all going to build on the core things we've talked about today. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I think teachers, senkers need to be able to articulate a core and then go, and also don't forget, and also there's this. But this is the core, and I think that's really helpful. So um, you've given me some links to share again, so adding those to the show notes and also your contact details. And you'll find the show notes wherever you listen to the podcast or on our website. Um, thank you for listening, Toe. If you haven't subscribed already, if you've read Gary's book, you've seen Gary, you found the podcast because of Gary, and you'd like to listen to more, you can find the link to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website, which is www.thesendcast.com. Please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at The Sendcast. And on Facebook and Instagram, we are The Sendcast. All quite simple. And if you like listening to us through Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and let others know what you think. And before we go, I'd just like to remind you once again to check out the Training for Education website. You'll find a number of guests on the Sendcast are speakers at our virtual Send conference, or they have recorded their own training courses. And Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. It is online training, but it's not a low-cost, cheap option to replace to you can get back to conferences in reality what we've learned is in reality schools cannot afford to send every member of staff to learn about sen but actually every single member of staff needs to learn about sen so the option is sen the training for education the virtual send conferences and the sendcast because this is really great content so people like gary and all my other amazing speakers guests giving you not a lecture so that whole metacognition and cognition stuff, it's not just a full-on lecture. It's a conversation where I'm sitting there talking rubbish, giving Gary a break, and you to nice content what Gary's saying. You're listening to me meandering. It's like listening to someone else talking in your class, having their thoughts, and you're going, Actually, I didn't think of it that way. It's a great way of doing that. And the courses are great because they are sessions you can re-watch. So I know people who watch a session, goes, I generally watch it six times because I can which means I might get stuck on that first bit and my head's lost on the first bit, they said. And then I get that and I go back and watch it again. I've moved on. So that's what's great about it is, and it's really cost effective. So visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to our Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past. We run them every year by using the code Sendcast10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for having me, Dale. You're welcome. Cheers, Gary. Bye, everyone. Bye.